0: Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future. I'm your host, Maureen Methef, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. With me today, I am delighted to welcome Raj Sisodia and Sudanshu Palsole. We are recording live at the 2022 International Leadership Association Conference in D.C. Raj and Sudanshu spoke at a session, Leading with Care and Purpose. Welcome, and please tell us a little bit about yourselves.
1: Sure. Happy to be with you, uh, Maureen. Thank you for having us. I'm currently a professor at Tecnológico de Monterey, professor of Conscious Enterprise, as well as the chairman of the Conscious Enterprise Center. And this is about spreading the ideas and the philosophy of conscious capitalism to Mexican businesses, to Central America, Latin America, and ultimately the world. And you were co-author of the seminal Conscious Capitalism book. That's right. Sorry. We wrote that in 2013. And this came out of some work I had done, a book that was published in 2007 called Firms of Endearment, where I discovered that companies that were loved by everybody, hence the name, we discovered what are the principles or their approaches that make that happen. And we discovered the four pillars of conscious capitalism. There's a higher purpose. There's a stakeholder mindset, not a shareholder mindset. There's a conscious leadership that cares about the people and cares about the purpose. And there's a caring and trusting culture. And that companies, when they operate in that way, they actually outperform the market dramatically by 9 to 1 in over 10 years in my research. So that kind of became the basis for a movement to say, let's change the story of business because the old story doesn't work and it's causing too much harm while it's trying to create jobs and products and services.
0: Thank you. And Sudashu?
1: Well, I got into the field of leadership through the back door
2: I was not trained for anything to do with business, but at a certain point, I had a mentor who actually said to me, you need to come and talk to the people in the world of business. And this was about going back about 25 years. And then that got me into uh, thinking about uh, leadership from the point of view of what exactly is it that leadership does in a fast-moving 21st century context? Everything around us is being dismantled as we speak by digital technology, environmental overshoot, and a whole lot of factors that are affecting the world. And yet the way we seem to be behaving and leading our organizations hasn't really changed that much from the industrial age. So I think my interest really grew from that point onwards to start thinking about, so what can be done differently? And That kind of brought me to one of the things that we spoke about a little earlier, Maureen, which is the whole world of purpose and empathy, and how can we shift narratives in our business enterprises and in academia that can take us away from the maxim that, you know, the role of business is to make money, period, into being a lot more inclusive of some of these deeper human aspects. So that's really what I do. I'm a fellow at the University of Cambridge. I'm a faculty at Duke. And then apart from that, I spend a lot of time writing, talking to people and trying to do less and less every year, which I'm not succeeding at.
0: (laughs) And you also have a recent book in the spirit of doing less because books, of course, don't take any time to write.
2: Now, you're right. So that book is called Rehumanizing Leadership. And that came out just before the pandemic. The one that came out before that was called The Social Leader. That, Interestingly, that came out in a far more optimistic time. Obama had just come into the White House and uh, the world seemed to be in good shape. And then suddenly after that, we seem to have entered a, a big slide, which we are in right now. So yeah. So these are the two recent books. The other books go back a long way.
0: Let's talk about then the topic about leading with care and purpose. So let's start with purpose. Why do you care about purpose?
2: It's inescapable as one of the primary evolutionary forces that courses our veins as human beings, one that we have acknowledged in literature, in philosophy, in uh, so many aspects of life, but never really acknowledged in the world of business enterprise or even in academia. It remains the fuel source that drives human agency, that gives a sense of meaning to people. And as I was saying a little earlier, it's time to think of how we can bring it back consciously into the world of business. I think it serves an enormous role in doing good for the world. It's of service, and we need to create new narratives around purpose that make it mainstream rather than something good to have on top of all the stuff that we end up doing anyway. So it's required. A fundamental change in the way we think about ourselves as human beings, our relationship to each other, our relationship to the work that we do, and the workplaces that we create in which people come and spend most of their lives. And if they're not purposeful, we're missing a huge trick over here.
0: When I teach leadership, the first thing we do is explore the idea of each person's individual purpose and values, not my business purpose, my human purpose. And consistently for most people, that is the most impactful part of any of the programs they've done. There are still a few people who don't understand why it matters. They're maybe earlier on their journey. That's correct. Just building on what you said right now, for me, leadership
2: is a continuous process of self-discovery. It's the unraveling of the mysterious forces that drive us to do what we do for the good of the others and leaders who start getting in touch with their purpose seem to find that journey not just a little easier, but also a lot richer.
0: And they're more effective.
2: And they're more effective.
0: If I have an internal compass, I'm going to consistently make decisions that are driven by my values, not just whatever is expedient for today.
1: You got it. You know, I think purpose is a fundamental human need. What defines us as human beings? What makes us unique among all life on this planet? We have, of course, self-interest, and that is a necessary thing for all of us to have, to look after our own well-being. The mistake we made was that we defined human beings from an economic standpoint. Purely in the dimension of what's called homo economicus, right? Material self-interest, that everybody is basically just maximizing that. And all decisions come out of that. And all the theories are founded upon that. And the whole superstructure of capitalism is built on one pillar. And that's not a very stable foundation. You know, you need multiple pillars. And I think there are two others. So the other one is the need to care fundamentally we are wired. So Adam Smith is considered the father of modern capitalism. He wrote The Wealth of Nations, which was about the drive for self-interest, that people pursuing self-interest will organize society in a way that will work. But he also wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, 17 years earlier, which is about the human need to care without regard to self-interest. So we are wired to care. And it's not always a selfish thing. If I care, then this will happen. So we have that. So that's the second dimension that we have been missing in the world of business and leadership. And the third is purpose, the drive to purpose. Human beings have always had that, I agree with Sadan but if you look at human history until 200 years ago ninety percent of people lived in extreme abject poverty, less than a dollar ninety a day in today's terms. and so they were only focused on survival. So purpose is a luxury at a high level you know you can't really think about that if you don't have enough to eat or you're just looking to survive. I think we live in a world today where not everybody but billions of people have the ability to think about their life in a deeper way and that hunger for meaning and purpose is universal in us as individuals and, in any entities that we create, organizations, companies, et cetera, they are reflections of us, right? Organizations are a collection of organisms. And so everything we create also has to have its own purpose. And if you don't have a purpose, if you don't have a explicitly articulated higher purpose and the core values that go with that, then you default to the normal purpose, which you're told is just about making money. And that is not only not as effective, but it is actually harmful. Because when you just focus on making money, you view people through that lens and you always make trade-offs in favor of increasing profits and increase. And that means you end up squeezing your employees. You end up causing all the statistics we see. Heart attacks are 20% higher on Mondays. 120,000 Americans die from stress every year connected to work. 600,000 Chinese die from overwork every year. So the human cost of doing business is completely neglected. We end up Exploiting our customers, selling them things that they don't need. We end up squeezing our suppliers. We end up hurting the environment. We end up destroying communities, all in service of greater profit. So, not only does that not tap into the higher side, but actually causes a lot of suffering in the world, unnecessary suffering. And if we change that and start to approach it with purpose and values and genuine caring, if we combine those three things together, it is extraordinary. It shows that business can create value at quantum levels higher than what we have been doing under the old mindset.
0: I trust this is true, and yet we're not there. We're not even close to there. What helps us move through that, I'll say chasm, you may be more optimistic than I am. I've certainly worked with brilliant people who are deeply caring and deeply purposeful. And yet it still seems like the average organization has not yet moved to a B Corp. We still argue about, is the purpose of the corporation just to make money? We've got Jamie Dimon and other groups of leaders saying that, in fact, it is this larger sense of purpose. And yet we just saw the state of Texas say they don't support the big three firms who think that ESG is kind of important. So it seems like we're in this battle still for what is even the purpose of business.
1: So I think we are in an interim phase right now. I believe in the last 30 years, we have made a lot of progress. You know, I never heard of Purpose uh, until 25 years ago. It, now it's almost mainstream. Every business at least pays lip service to it. There are a lot of consultancies that are working on that, this idea of stakeholders versus shareholders, until a couple of years ago, you know, pretty much getting broad acceptance, the idea of conscious leadership, et cetera, broadening the understanding of leadership and the impact of culture. right? Like Drucker said, culture eats strategy for lunch, et cetera. More and more people are recognizing this. So I think we made a lot of progress. Over the last few decades, movements like ours, B Corp, B Team, Just Capital, Inclusive Capitalism, all of these have been growing and attracting more and more attention as well as followers. I think what we are right now in a phase of, I, I lose the Star Wars analogy, right? So episode one is the force awakens. Consciousness has been awakening all over the world. And if you look at it, it's, it's, it's an ongoing story for human society. 150 years ago, we had slavery, right? 100 years ago, women couldn't vote. 75 years ago, we had colonialism. Fifty years ago, we still had segregation in this country. Thirty years ago, we had apartheid. Fifteen years ago, gay people had no rights and so forth. And, and and likewise, we've continued. And the Berlin Wall, the coming down of that, that was kind of a turning point. And after that, we made a lot of progress. But I think what we are now in the second episode, which is the empire strikes back. And this is your Texas governor and your Florida and all of these people now using their political power to basically try to bring back the old way. Anytime you see a lot of change in the world, there's an established order that feels threatened. And of course, we've had a sort of patriarchal, profit-driven system in which the small number of people at the top have done extremely well by their own definition of success. A lot of power and a lot of money. Many, many billionaires, and you know, not even founders, executives of companies becoming billionaires, right? like Jack Welch and others. So by their value system, and theirs is a limited value system, it's all about power and money. And we know that doesn't bring happiness, but that's our system has actually systematically promoted and developed and elevated those kinds of people. And that's who occupies the highest you know, levels of most major companies. And so they've done very well by their own standards. And now there's a backlash, as I said, the empire strikes back. And we're going through that right now. There's always a tug of war between the forces of progress and evolution And the ones who want to hold that back because they perceive a loss of privilege and a loss of status, right? When you've been sort of the top of the pile for so long and now other people are able to get rights and recognition and some degree of power, they feel certain, although they shouldn't because it's not a zero-sum game. We can all rise. And so I think we're in that phase and I believe there is an episode three always. That is the return of the Jedi. So we have to stay focused on what we know and believe to be right, that if we continue down that path in a century, this planet will be uninhabitable we are stealing the future from our children, and we are actually destroying not only this planet, but other life forms. There's a mass extinction of species going on in the history of this planet, the first one caused by human activity. And we know that all life is interconnected. So it's not just climate change, it's species extinction. And what happens, as Einstein said, if the bees disappear, humans disappear five years later. That is happening. There's an apocalypse of insects. Right? I just read yesterday that two-thirds of wildlife has disappeared since 1970. All of life is interconnected and we are the apex species whose responsibility it is to steward this planet and all of the life. And we're all interconnected and therefore if those lives die, those life forms, eventually we also die. So we have to recognize that we cannot give in to these retrograde forces that are trying to pull us back and take us backwards, that we have to stay true to what we know is needed in the world.
2: Well, I'll just build on Raj's wonderful answer. So if you look at uh, history and the big changes that have taken place in history, when one system is going to be replaced by another, it's almost like a paradigm is disappearing and a new one is being born. The old paradigm puts up its last stand because that's all that it knows. The stand can last for decades. Sometimes it can last for many, many decades. So I think there's going to be a lot of pain that we will necessarily have to go through as a system gets replaced by another one. But we cannot just wait for the systems to get replaced. I think there's something else that we'll have to do. And for me, if we truly want to bring things like purpose and caring into mainstream, leadership will have to evolve to a higher level of consciousness. So the change is not just going to happen out there. The change will have to happen in here. And I think that's where our endeavor ought to be. How do we bring those heading up our organizations, as well as those in the lower echelons of the organization, how do we make them more conscious about who they are so they awaken to themselves, they awaken to their own purpose, their own potential, and their own sense of interconnection and interdependence with the rest of the world? Because that's sorely lacking right now. And that, to me, should be the task of education from here onwards. If you take a look at the word education it has such an extraordinary etymology to it educare literally means to draw forth it's not about putting in it's drawing forth drawing out it is not about information and we've sorely missed the point on that one for for decades or maybe even centuries this is where digital technology can play a useful role where the information has now been commoditized and it's out there. It's not the role of the teacher to provide information because we have it there. The role of the teacher is to awaken people. So in a way, we are going back to
0: some extraordinary ideas from the past, from every culture. That's what teachers did. I've been teaching in grad schools for about 20 years and classes now are conversations. I've ditched the lecture. You listen to podcasts, you read articles And you come to class prepared or embarrassed, and there is that option. The entire class is an interaction around the ideas. Disagreeing is fine. It's part of the conversation. But it is almost the Socratic building of judgment, building of acumen, building of skills of interaction. I would love to sit in one of your classes both of you, because it seems like those would be engaging places to be. I imagine being in Paris years ago with the great philosophers, having those conversations in the salons. We don't have that as much now.
2: True. Where the heart and mind are both engaged, and there's passion, and there is poetry, and there is literature— The divisions that we've created between the technical subjects, the technicality of it all, and then the arts, it's
0: almost sidelined. It's what you do in your spare time. And I think we need to bring those two back. Yeah, the other time you're doing, quote, real work. The space for art and inspiration are the bastion of hobbies. And yet we talk about leaders inspiring followership, that part of the role of the leader is to truly inspire, not dictate. How do we develop inspiration? It it is learning from the arts in many cases. Those skills can be used to to ends that are harmful as
1: well, right? If a leader becomes very skillful, a demagogue, right, they can inspire people down a wrong path. You know, human beings are quite malleable that way. You know, we have the dark and the light within us. So if you look at the Milgram experiments at Yale in the 60s, it's really frightening that ordinary people can be just with a few incentives and a structure that you create around them, and you take away responsibility from their actions you can get them to do terrible things, torture other people, right? Just because I was told to do so and I get $20 at the end of the day, you know, and start my decision and I'm not responsible. So again, a bad leader can do that. And that's why, you know, he was inspired to do that research because his parents had been in the Holocaust. So what makes ordinary people. So again, the power of leadership is extraordinary to awaken us to our better angels or to actually use fear and other ways to tap into our demons. And I think we have a lot of those kinds of leaders in the world today that are operating as part of this backlash period that I think we're talking about. You know, those are not high conscious leaders that are trying to take us to a better place. And I think it's about awakening. You know, I love that word. In fact, it's the name of my memoir that's uh, I just completed, which is Awaken. And it's my journey to purpose, wholeness, and healing. And I do believe those are three universal journeys that all of us take in our own way, and we need to arrive at those. And that's essential for all of us, but especially leaders. So you have to awaken to your purpose. What is your unique purpose? That is a combination of your innate nature and what makes you who you are, plus what is right and good in the world, what evolution and nature call upon us to be instruments of. So discovering that, I say you have to know yourself, you have to love yourself, and then you have to be yourself and then express yourself into the world. So that's the purpose side. And then wholeness. All of us are fragmented beings. You know, we have these capacities within us that are disintegrated. So we have the masculine side and the feminine side. And most of us and society has kind of conditioned people to only focus on that masculine energy. Right? And the feminine has been suppressed. People have been made to feel shame if they exhibit caring and empathy and tears and so forth, right? So women have been sidelined and the feminine has been suppressed. And therefore, that means we are operating as half-human beings. And the fact is, the majority of people on this planet are women. And all of us have both sides, men and women. And so we need to become whole beings. You know, in India, where we both come from, we have symbols and we have gods that represent all of the values and what we need to aspire to. So we have a god who's the Ardhanarishwar, who half male, half female god. Right. So this side is Shiva and this side is Parvati, and you've got the full, the beauty of the masculine, the full beauty of the feminine together. And the idea is we are born into genders, you know, two or they could be other. But then over time, the journey is to evolve towards wholeness, to be tough-minded and tender-hearted, as Martin Luther King said. Right. So that wholeness is an essential piece. How do I become a human who is capable, who's equally in equal measure, strong? and powerful and loving and empathetic and caring and nurturing and all of those, as well as the other two dimensions, which is the elder and the child. How do I tap into my higher self, my divine self, where meaning and purpose and transcendence and legacy and those kinds of things come? And how do I heal my inner child so that I have access to joy and playfulness and creativity and laughter and humor? You know, most of us have a wounded inner child. So how do I create healthy manifestations of all four energies within myself so that I can be a whole being? And the phrase we use is, how can you be the wise fool of tough love? You're wise and you're foolish. So the healthy elder energy and the healthy child, think about the Dalai Lama, right? He's incredibly wise, but he's always giggling and playful, right? And you're tough, incredibly strong and resolute and have moral courage and personal power. And you're rooted in love, right? And so that combination is really ultimately what we all need to aspire to. Problem. With that, for many of us, is the fact that we have that wounded inner child. And that's why the third piece comes in healing. We have to heal ourselves. All of us are carrying wounds and traumas in our lives, right? And if you don't acknowledge that, and we, we will never heal them. And so I believe every single human being has some degree of post-traumatic stress injury. Because life is difficult. Childhood is challenging. All kinds of things happen. They, they put scars on our psyche that last a lifetime, and we become reactive. We don't even know why we act the way we do sometimes, and say, I don't know why, why that happened. I don't know what I was thinking. Because there's a trigger. There's an amygdala hijack, right? So these are all things that are hidden within us. And some of these are memories that we may have suppressed. I know that I uncovered memories from my childhood and my, you know, my relationship with my father that my body had erased because it was too traumatic.
0: Because you've just written your memoir, some of these you will share. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to consciousness and then to wholeness? Because I think those are distinctly different, right?
1: Consciousness to me is awakening to purpose, awakening, uh, recognizing, you know, getting to that stage of knowing myself and loving myself. You know, for me, that was a huge chasm. To the extent that I knew myself, you know, I knew that my nature was to be trusting, to be uh, peace-loving, harmony-seeking, idealistic, and somewhat in my head. And my father told me that all of those are weaknesses, Mm -hmm. that you need to be the opposite, Right? So, I thought of myself, oh, I'm too trusting, I'm naive, I'm foolish. Or I can't be ideal, you need to be pragmatic, right? You can't be in a harmony, you need to be rough and tough, you know, et cetera. So, to the extent that I knew myself, I kind of despised myself. I said, oh my God, I'm just a bundle of flaws and weaknesses. And I tried to live as the opposite of who I actually, my innate nature was. And that is not a formula for anybody to be happy or successful, right? If you're trying to be the opposite, you know, you cannot act your way through life, you have to be. So you have to recognize that those are my gifts, liabilities, not my weaknesses. So when you're born, certain qualities choose you in a way, right? I mean, you're born with this. And at some point in life, you have to go back and choose those qualities, even though they chose you in the first place. If you deny them, then you will never be who you're meant to be. So you have to consciously choose. I said, I choose my trusting nature. I choose my innocence. I choose my harmony, peace-loving nature, etc. And then that becomes a source of strength. So to me, the consciousness was awakening to my purpose and the world and also to my innate nature, right? And this is in India, you know, we talk about your innate nature, which is your swabhav, and then dharma, which is the righteous path. There's a righteous path in the world for all of us, but then there's my unique righteous path, which is swadharma, the combination of my nature and what is right in the world. So that would be different for me and then what it is for you because your nature is different. So we will find our own path. So these are things that it took me until the age of 50 to really start to get there. I stumbled onto my purpose, and I started to develop that self-awareness over time. And some of this just happened in the last four years, because I had never gone in that inner journey. I had my first spiritual experience as a course around 2004, so I was already 46 years old at that point. And then that was really around purpose and values and so forth. But then learning about my own inner journey and my own healing and all of that, that just happened in the last four years.
0: What sparked it?
1: Four years ago, it was because I was writing a book, and I, you know, as soon as I finish one book, I'm on to the next one, and I'm just like, oh my god, I'm this panic sense of urgency almost. I don't even know why. <laughs> and so I was on to my next book, and I was writing the Healing Organization. There was something within me, you know, I can't even trace exactly why that thought came, but I said, business causes too much suffering in the world. We think that in order to make money, we have to give people heart attacks and shorten their life and damage their children's well being and you know, destroy the planet. There's so much suffering in the world, business is contributing to that suffering and it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to hurt people to make money. You don't have to damage the planet to do that. So that was the exploration of that idea. How can we reduce suffering and bring more joy into the world through business and the way we do business? I, most businesses do the opposite. They increase suffering and reduce drain joy. Something within me was hungry for that, but I thought it was sort of, again, talk about the head, right? I was engaged mentally, but I wasn't yet fully engaged at a spirit level. It took actually four women pointing that out to me. They all said the same thing. They said, Raj, you're writing a book about healing. What about your own healing? My initial response was, I don't have time for that. I've got a book deadline. (laughs) In October, I've got the whole summer blocked out for writing retreats. And they said, no, book deadlines are flexible. You cannot write about healing if you don't work on yourself. you never take any time off. You're never alone. You're never without running from airport to airport, project to project. Take some time. Be in nature. Be in silence. Go within. And unfortunately, I listened to them. These are all wise women, and when four of them tell you the same thing. So I delayed the book by five months, and I said, okay, I'm going to explore this. And I said yes to a number of things I had already said no to, including a trip to the Himalayas, where we had a spiritual journey. I wrote a book called Shakti Leadership. So we do these Shakti spiritual journeys to some place in the world that has a lot of spiritual resonance. And this is the border of India and Tibet, Ladakh, in the high Himalayas, 20,000 feet and above, and which is the seat of really deep Buddhist wisdom. You know about Tibetan Buddhism and a lot of that exists in that part of India as well. That's where I turned 60 that year in 2018. So it was a time of looking at life and looking back and trying to make sense. Uh, I also said yes to a silent retreat in upstate New York with Peter Sengi and David Cooperider and others. And I, in those four days, I... I just received so much wisdom from somewhere. I had 45 pages of notes of insights about life. You know, a lot of this came there. Uh I said yes to a trip to the Amazon rainforest with Lynn Twist and the Pachamama Alliance. After I interviewed her for the book, she called back the next day and said, I had a dream and the message I got was, you need to be on this trip. You're going to learn more about healing in these 10 days from the shamans and from these indigenous people than you will learn in years of research. So I said yes, and I had an incredible 10-day experience there including a shamanic healing with ayahuasca. And I got these incredible visions and insights. And then I also had a coach for the first time. And when she heard my story and how my life and work had been a certain way until I was 45, and then I got onto this path, which was connected to my real journey and my purpose, she said, Do you realize that you spent 45 years trying to impress your father? And now you've spent 15 years honoring your mother with your work. And that's been your real journey on this lifetime. It's to bring your mother's energy into the world of business and leadership. And I did not have a think about it that way, but it's really true. Everything I'm talking about is elevating the feminine. I've written books about that, right? And I'm much more like my mother than I am like my father. And she represents that pure, unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And then I also did some other plant journeys as well because I, I was so impacted by that experience, giving me access to levels of consciousness that I didn't have before. And I I got insights that led me to make sense of my life, to connect the dots, to say, why were you born in that family at that time, in that culture, so that you would experience things which would then lead you to do this. 55 years later, you would write this book. And this was all part of the menu. This was all part of your curriculum, you know, that you were meant to live in this lifetime. You know, we're all here to grow in the particular way. You know, each of us is a seed that erupts into something unique. That's something that came to me on that silent retreat, actually. When it was lunchtime, Everybody's silent, including the people giving you food, right? So you just take your plate and you go there and there are four or five things and they just put stuff in your plate. They don't ask you, do you want this or this? They just give you whatever there is, right? And so the thought came to me that life is not a buffet and nor can you order off a menu. You're given a tray full of stuff. You need all of it, even though it's unappetizing or might taste bitter, but this is your what you need in this lifetime, you know? So instead of thinking, oh, why was I born to this kind of father? Or why was I born into that kind of culture? Instead of being a victim of your life, you say, I choose it. I choose everything that happened. Even the hardest and most painful thing I wouldn't wish upon anybody. I choose it because that is part of the formative experiences that then ultimately led me to do something that mattered. So these were some of the insights that came. As a result, I said, I can't put all of that into that book, so I need to write another book about it, son. That's what I've just done.
0: Thank you. Sudachu, I assume you have an interesting healing experience and story as well. Would you be willing to share that? I've been a bit reflective while you
2: were talking because you said these things so beautifully. You know, I'll just take recourse to a couple of insights that came from Carl Jung when he said, um, you have to be aware of who you are and who you are in the process of becoming. It's taken me decades to understand that because it's a combination of both who I am, which Raj explained so beautifully in terms of that was the menu that was served. It's there. This body, the preferences we have, the tendencies we carry in us, they're there. Then there is also the process of becoming. What am I becoming? It's the understanding of those two concurrent forces that starts shifting our perspective on who we are and how we are related to the world. And I think these are the two most profound thoughts and contexts that really shape our thinking. Who am I and what am I in the process of becoming? The other big influence in my life, going back to when I was 18 years old, when a friend of mine dragged me to a lecture given by a philosopher whose name I'd never heard of, His name happened to be J. Krishnamurti. I'd never heard of him, and I, I was literally dragged out there. And I still remember sitting in that audience listening to this man, this very small, frail man whose voice resonated. And when he said, you are the world, intellectually, I didn't understand it. I was trying to analyze it. But somewhere deep down, those words took root, and I began to understand the nature of reality a lot clearer over the next many, many decades that it's taken me. The healing is continuing, and sometimes I wonder if it's a lifelong process. Raj and I talked briefly just before we went for our plenary session. I asked Raj if he had heard about this amazing Canadian psychiatrist called Gabor Mate, who has done some incredible work on trauma. And one of the things I've learned from him is that the body never lies.
0: There's a book called that, right? Yes, there's a book
2: called (laughs) that too. And so since then, I've started to focus a lot more attention on my own body, my own somatic intelligence. You talked about, Raj, about the disconnection we have from the feminine, right? And that the other disconnection we have is from the body. So it's literally from up here. Everything is up here. We're trained to be this. So in a funny kind of way, I'm trying to reconnect with my own body. And that, to me, is going to be a major part of the healing going forward. So the journey towards healing continues.
0: I don't think it'll be over. There's a lot of work to do on that topic. I don't often share my own journey, but also a lot of disconnected memories, unawareness of my history. And then when those things come back, they come back with force. And yet the other gift of having written a number of books, and one of them especially, felt like it wrote me. I couldn't do anything else until that book was written. It was going to come out. Not to say I have no agency, but that thing was going to come out, and it could come out slower, it could come out quickly, but until that happened, I wasn't going to do much else. And so this thing of life lives us as we get out of the way. As we chip away at the stone, there is significant beauty, and there is also significant pain. They coexist.
1: The Japanese have a beautiful expression for that. It's called kintsugi, the art of precious scars, Mm. where they take broken pottery and put it back together with a blend of gold powder and glue. And so now you see this thing with all these veins running through it, and it's a work of art, but it also is stronger than it was before. So when we heal from our wounds and our traumas, then we actually emerge with what's called post-traumatic growth, which is that we are stronger for having had that trauma and healed from it, than if you never had it in the first place. And secondly, we become instruments of healing that trauma for others. As Victor Fangle said, find meaning in your suffering. The only meaning to make out of any suffering, we don't control what happens to us usually, but the only way to make meaning is to prevent that same suffering in others. I don't want others to go through what I had to go through, so I learned from that and I made myself stronger. And I think the other part of what you were talking about, becoming, you know I really resonate with that as well. You know, I've always used the metaphor of the caterpillar becoming a butterfly. So I think about the caterpillar's existence, it's all about consumption. All the caterpillar is programmed to do is to eat as much as possible in the short few weeks that it exists. As a caterpillar, it becomes many times its original size. But then nature steps in and turns on those imaginal cells, and then it goes into that cocoon phase and the transformation, and metamorphosis, and emerges as this other creature of light and beauty, the butterfly. It's still the same creature. Will completely transform. In fact, it had to die to its old self, and that became fuel for the new self to emerge. And the level of consciousness of a butterfly, if you think about it, it's operating not just about consuming, but it is enabling other life to flourish through cross-pollination. And it is bringing beauty into the world, which are both important things, right? So we can all have that kind of a journey. We can either exist at a caterpillar level, which is all about consumption and accumulation of material things in the world, you know, I have a friend who once said I had everything, but I wanted two of everything. There's no limit. And ultimately you end up with eight houses and six jets or whatever it is. And you're trying to fill a hole that you cannot fill with those things, right? So again, it's a caterpillar existence I'm just taking and I'm accumulating for myself and I, my company can be a reflection of that. I can have companies that I can have many cat I, mean, I know many human caterpillars out there. And I know many corporate caterpillars, right? Or it can evolve into this other entity of light and beauty in the world and promoting, flourishing. For others. But you know, in the case of the butterfly, it doesn't have a choice. The caterpillar doesn't wake up one day and say, What empty and meaningless life am I living? You know, I need to do good for others, right? But for us as human beings, we have to make that choice. We have to make that, you know, decision. As Peter Kastenbaum said, we have reached such explosive levels of freedom that we are in charge of our own mutation. We have to decide that I'm going to actually innovate. Right? And of course, we get help. We get mentors. We get teachers. We Once you decide and go down that path, then all kinds of things open up. But we have to go on our hero's journey. We will face traumas. We will face pain. We will have the dark soul of the night. But then we will emerge as this newly powerful being with all the gifts that we have earned right, from that experience. So I think that's the journey that we all have to be on. And that's really the greatest challenge and opportunity of both of our works, which is now increasingly about leaders. And awakening leaders to their calling and to their higher selves, you know, to say you're not here to become as rich and powerful as you can in 40 years of your career, right? You are here to do as much good in the world as you can using all the gifts that you have been given. And how do you recognize that that is the source of deepest fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness, not how many billions or millions you end up with? You know, and I was given a stark reminder of this three years ago. Both my parents died suddenly within three months, four months. And my father was the embodiment of that, uh, that energy, right? He had a lot of personal power and charisma and brilliance and intelligence, but he was all about power, you know, from an ego perspective. It's all about power and money and status and success. So he represented that, but he did not come from love, and he didn't have a higher purpose in his life, right? It was all about how much can I accumulate. As long as you did what he wanted, he loved you. If you didn't, then you were dead to him, which he literally cut me off for five years and said, I would rather not have a son, you know, etc. Great personal power, no unconditional love. My mother had great unconditional love. You, there's nothing you could do that would cause her to not love you and continue to show. But she had no personal power. She never stood in her own personal power. And then both of them died, and I saw the funerals, right? And I, we were, I was there, of course. And when my father died, nobody cried. Only my mother cried. But my sister, my brother, me, my cousins, my nieces, my I have, nobody. I'm looking around saying, wow, this is a very solemn, almost like a state funeral. You know, everybody's very, it's a big deal, the passing of a patriarch, But there's no grief. And four months later, when my mother cried, there was an outpouring of grief that I've never seen. You know, I was crying for weeks before and after this happened, you know, and it just opened up people's hearts. And so that really gave me a lens. If you can ask people, what will be the predominant feeling when you are no more? Is it going to be grief or relief? And when my grandfather died, there was relief because he was a harsh, tyrannical patriarch. People's lives were constrained and controlled by him. Nobody could actually live the way they wanted to, and they were waiting to inherit the land and inherit the title and inherit whatever. Literally, there was a countdown to say when, you know, when will this happen? Right. So, will there be grief or relief? Will there be gratitude or apathy? And the same applies when you step down from your role as CEO. What will be left in the room? Will it, is people are going to be relieved? Is there going to be grief? You know. So, I think that's the ultimate test. And to me, the holy grail, therefore, is how can you live life so that You have that great personal power and impact with unconditional love together. If my mother could have had personal power, she could have had such a huge impact beyond even what she already had, which was huge. Love is ultimately more powerful than what my father had, but the combination is really extraordinary. And So how do we bring that together and how do we get leaders to recognize that before it's too late and they end up in their deathbed and they're alone and miserable and rich? That happens a lot. I know a lot of miserable billionaires, very, very rich people.
0: So then what does 21st century leadership look like? You've started to shape the conversation. How do we take that forward and build on it? It's got to begin
2: with a profound
0: recognition
2: that we cannot go on like this. You know, dying on your deathbed, being rich and powerful, as you described, may have been okay at a certain point. But today, it is not only not a great way to die, as Raj said, you're also being extremely unproductive in what was entrusted to you. If you're the CEO, for example. And I think we need to go back a little bit and figure out what exactly has changed uh, when we talk about the 21st century. And to me, so many of our 20th century leadership models which were assiduously followed by a lot of leaders, including some of the theories that came out of academia, including scientific management and all those things, were residues of the industrial age, where two simple things. Work had to be broken up into tiny units, and as long as you had each unit being managed by someone who had the task of managing them, and then you just supervise your employees, in the end, work gets done. That was fine when you were operating in a small, linear, simple world. When you operate in the kind of complex world that we are operating in right now, and add to that the litany of issues we have, complex issues of the environment, of social division, and of course, you know, you have a species that is wired up for the very first time in its history. We've never had this before. So when you put all that together, that residue of the industrial age is not going to work. End of story. We have to figure out a different way of doing things. You know, so far, the operating principle for most organizations was about the received word, as I called it in my previous book. As long as you heard from the top what you had to do, your job was to go and execute. And it comes from the time when the people at the top of the organization were the only literate people. They were the only ones with the information. They are the only ones with the resources. And the rest were practically devoid of any of that. We still continue that. Even today, there is this big myth in so many organizations that the top sets the strategy and the rest of the organization executes. And I think it's one of the most misplaced notions of how work gets done. I hope that we have gone past the era of executive meeting rooms and uh, executive parking lots and executive canteens or cafeterias, as we had before, executive bathrooms. All those entitlements that were part of that 20th century just kind of seeped into leadership models. So power and authority became equated with leadership. And forget about this whole thing that Raj is talking about, about the feminine side and caring. There was no room for that. The narrative had no accommodation of that. But once that world disappears, and it is disappearing rapidly, we are being dismantled faster than ever. There's simply going to be no room for that leadership. So we have to, like the caterpillar, to use the analogy that you just used, Raj, we have to find a new awakening that comes into being. And to me, that 21st century leadership has got to be a lot more whole to begin with. It's got to depend on interconnections and interdependencies. It's got to adopt a partnership model rather than the dominator model, in in, in the words of Ryan Eisler, who wrote that great book on partnership. And finally, I think we will have to differentiate between leadership and the leader. The leader is a nominal, notional title or a place of status that you've been given at this moment in time to be of service to the world. And your job is important because you have the energy, the resources, and the passion to nudge things through your conversations, through your actions, through your behaviors. But ultimately, Leadership originates in the system around you. It's an immersion phenomenon. It's not, follow me, I'll take you to the Holy Grail. It doesn't work like that anymore. So we've got to make those fundamental shifts. And there are people in leadership positions that are slowly awakening to that fact, but they're also struggling because they don't know of this way of leading. And we've got to educate them.
0: I was hired at one point to help a leader who was, quote, not leaderly. And he was, in fact, the things that we're describing. He ran a palliative care division in a hospital, and they were expecting someone more directive and in charge. And instead, he was incredibly caring. He was an ethics professor, a neuroscientist, and would embody the things that we would equate with the butterfly. It is certainly not male power. He had, I would say, balanced male and female energy. It does seem that as long as people running organizations who are setting the tone are looking for leaderly, as described by the traditional industrial revolution model, we continue to get what we have seen historically. The shift from Empire Strikes Back to Return of the Jedi, I think coming from academics, coming from the brilliant books you're writing, coming from conferences like this, and from our younger generation who's saying, I won't work for that. If we can't hire good employees we can't have thriving companies. And I won't buy that stuff from those companies to the extent that we also don't have customers. And you know what, Maureen? They outnumber
2: us substantially. People of our generation, Raj, you and I, we are less than 5% in organizations. That's the latest number. Really? The millennials are above 60%.
0: They outnumber us And Gen Zs will outnumber the millennials. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we have no choice. And they vote. And they vote. And they are purposeful, and they are worried about the climate. If Gen Zs continue to be what research is expecting, it will be very different in 10 years.
1: I agree. And just to build on uh, Sadansh's beautiful answer, the shift that I'm seeing in leadership over time, we used to have a militaristic model of leadership, right? command and control, hierarchy, And that also was borrowed from the military into organizations, right? Because when we started having large companies, the only large organizations that actually existed at that time were armies. And so we looked to the military to see how do we manage and lead large numbers of people. So we borrowed the organizational form, the hierarchy, the leadership approach of command and control. And then over time, we borrowed all the other stuff, right? Strategy and tactics and operations and front lines and headquarters. These are all military terms. And if you look at our day-to-day language of business, it is filled with military and war metaphors. We're going to capture market share, right? We're in the trenches. We're on the front lines. We're doing this and that. It's like business is a form of war. And, you know, we borrowed that language. We also borrowed the energy and the mentality. So business did become a kind of war, right? You have this army of your employees and you know, the customers are your targets and the competitors are your enemies and so forth, right? And that really became a very toxic way to be because business is not war. Business is a way for us to take care of each other and serve each other's needs. And if you do it with that warlike energy, it's a whole different experience. So we went from that military mindset, but then we replaced it starting in the 70s with a mercenary mindset. Leaders became all about the numbers and shareholder value. And then Jack Welch came along in the 80s and really turbocharged that. It's all about money, right? Everything is economic value added, shareholder value. You do share buybacks, you do mass layoffs, you do everything, right? In order, that's your only and solitary job. I think now we're moving into a world of what we would call missionary leadership, where it is about what are we trying to do and how do we all get there together. It's not even about having a business with a mission. It's about having a mission with a business. The business becomes a way to achieve that impact that we seek to see in the world, find in the world, right? So I think that is the fundamental shift that leadership is going through. And that is a kind of servant leadership. That is, you know, in Simon Sinek's book called Leaders Eat Last, which is a term that actually ironically comes from the military. Where in the Marines, I believe, when it's time to eat, you line up in reverse order of seniority, where the most junior person gets fed first and the commanding officer gets fed last. And that needs to be the mindset of leaders. You know, I'm here to take people to a better place to elevate their existence. It's not about me. I've transcended the self. So I think selfless leadership, which I use as a word to describe conscious leadership, but it also stands for those qualities, which I think I mentioned earlier. Right. You have to be strong. You have to be loving. You have to have all of those kinds of intelligence emotional, spiritual systems, et cetera. So I think that's the world we're moving towards, missionary, servant-oriented leadership, which is about using power with, not power over people. It's about empowering people, not taking away their power. It's about cultivating personal power, not just positional power. You know, there are a lot of people, the only source of power they have is their title and the fact that they're now in charge of X number of people. Once you take away that position, they become deflated like a balloon. There's nothing there now. But there are other people who have innate personal power. You think about Gandhi, he was never elected to anything. He was never the head of anything. He never had anybody reporting to him, okay? Maybe a personal assistant. But he was the most powerful being in the world for much of his life. And the kind of change that he affected, bringing the independence of India and ultimately the end of the British Empire and the end of colonialism. All of this would not have happened in the time frame it did. And then he inspired Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela to bring about significant changes in those societies. So again, that's the kind of leadership model that we need, right? People who are virtuous and purposeful. And we have unfortunately created systems in our political realm and in the business world where power and virtue don't go together for the most part because the power-hungry people are Machiavellian and they want to accumulate power for their own ego and their own money and uh, their greed and other factors, Right. So the most power-hungry people are not virtuous. And the most virtuous people do not seek out power because they're not power-hungry. But if you give them power, or if they attain power, then they will do extraordinary things with it. So I think that's where boards of directors have to find those kinds of people and give them that ability then to impact the world because they're bringing that set of qualities that you need.
0: I love the idea of virtue and power, seeking virtue. And again, this is still, has not yet become the prominent view. As we wrap up, what would you like our listeners to walk away from today? Since we have talked about power, I'd like to build a little bit on
2: that. Power is a source of energy. It's the fire that we hold in our hands. Power can burn, but power also provides light. It's the choice that we make about how we use that power that has been entrusted to us for now in the roles that we are in. It's not a place of permanence, It is something that's been entrusted to us. To be able to use it wisely for the good of others, for the good of the world, purposefully, empathically, and with compassion, I don't think you can go wrong.
0: I love that. David Hawken wrote a book, Power Versus Force, and the idea that power innately is not negative. Force is negative. Power moves our world forward. So I really appreciate that distinction. Thank you, and Raj. I would say work
1: on your own development. You know, we're all here to give and to grow in Richard Light as well. So, how can you evolve into who you're meant to be? Uh, work on your own self-awareness, discovering what your real role is in this lifetime, and you know, aspire to live a life of service. And so, then picture the scene at the end of your life, and what will be the energy in that room, and what do you want that obituary to say? not your resume virtues, but what you stood for in life and what impact you had on the lives you touched. And that is the ultimate test. And that will resonate through the generations because you're gone, but your children and your children and their future children will all be impacted by that. You know? So we all have an enormous wake that we leave behind, like a boat or a ship. Most of us never stop or pause to even see what it is. We have a much bigger impact than we realize and a much longer-lasting impact than we realize, both for good or bad. And so aspire to have a big impact, as big an impact as possible, in as positive a way as possible. Can you reiterate? The four energies, right? The elder energy, the child, the father, and the mother energy. Each of those has a healthy and an unhealthy manifestation. So you can be the healthy elder energy, which is meaning purpose, or you can be the unhealthy, which is superstition and fear and dogma and extreme conservatism. Uh, You can have the healthy child energy, which is playfulness and innocence and joy and laughter and creativity, or the unhealthy child energy, which is uh, self-indulgent, short-sighted, you know, kind of the adolescent energy, if you will. The healthy father energy, which is strength, courage, determination, focused, and resilience. Or you can have the unhealthy, which is domination, aggression, hyper-competition, winning at all costs. And you can have the healthy mother energy, love, compassion, empathy, caring, inclusiveness, or the unhealthy, which is sentimentality and dependence and neediness and so forth. So we aspire to be above the line on all of those and blend all of those together and recognize where you're strong and where you actually could do some work. So for me, if I look at myself, try to be objective, I probably have that sort of wise and probably have the loving, but I probably don't have the foolishness and the toughness. And I'm aware of that. In the last few years, I have been. So that means I need to lighten up at times and bring more humor and playfulness. And I need to cultivate that healthy masculine, the setting of boundaries, the leaning into necessary conflict of not being the chief harmony officer at all times, but actually being willing to fight the good fight to be the peaceful warrior. Some other people may have the opposite lessons. They've got the toughness down, right? We had a president here who was all foolishness and toughness, but he didn't have the love and he didn't have the wisdom. Again, all of us can become our own versions of the wise
0: fool of tough love. Beautiful. Thank you. So, Raj, first, where would people learn more about your work, connect with you? So, consciouscapitalism.org
1: is our movement. It's a global movement, and you'll probably find a chapter where you live. My own website is com, And, of course, I'm on LinkedIn and everywhere else.
0: And we'll have show notes with that information. And Sudhashu? I'm a bit more vagabondish than Raj is,
2: uh, so... (laughs) But I'm around. I'm around, at least for a little longer. So um, I'm on LinkedIn, of course. Uh, I have a website, which is www, then my tongue twister of a name, com. Write to me.
0: I'll reach out right away. I love that. I love the interconnections we carry. So thank you very much. Thank you both for sharing your wisdom. To our listeners, thank you for joining us. I trust that you will take great wisdom away from our show today. And thank you to the International Leadership Association. Please do connect with us on LinkedIn, either with the Innovative Leadership Institute and also with me, Maureen Metcalf. Thank you. Thank you, Maureen.